Okay. Well, it's good to see you all back. Um, we're continuing on with this changeover of our year's ministry concerning discipleship. So in the first six months or more, we dealt with the theory, and now we're going to be dealing with the how-to. So how, how do you develop your spiritual life? How do you develop your character? How do you develop godly relationships? And how do you develop your ministry? But before we begin them, I just want to bring in a couple of thoughts to you with regards to why we're doing this. And this is what this three to four part series is, this intermission and talking about the model of LifeHouse, the message of LifeHouse, and the environment in which we're going to, and the people that we're going to be God willing touching. So, last week we looked at the Big Five Discipleship Level 1 training program and what it means to be a Big Five Disciple. And at the end of that program, that training, more training than program, you need to be compatible with five verses of Scripture, Matthew 22, 37 to 40, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Matthew 6, 33, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And I introduced you to the big five. How to live an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, how to live from your heart, how to live in your calling, know your place in time, in other words, being fully conversant with the end times, the times we're living in, and understanding spiritual warfare and how to effectively prosecute spiritual warfare, being a warrior. So in essence, once you come out of that training, you should in effect be a global disciple, a disciple that thinks globally, not just in your own little environment, but you think about the world. You need to be a disciple that actually is becoming like Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be looking at the church in Acts, the model. And in essence, you'll notice from what I'm going to be talking to you about, why I'm doing what I'm doing with LifeHouse and what we're doing. Now, because we are changing models at LifeHouse, I might be so far in advance that this model is not even going to be needed in the next century because we know we're near the end times where Jesus is going to break the fifth seal. But it'll be a, it'll be a lot of fun doing it anyway. <laughs> but if I... And right, and we are close to the beginning period of the seven years where Jesus breaks the, se- the, the first seal and releases the horsemen of the apocalypse onto the globe. Then you're going to understand why this model is necessary and why you need to be familiar with this model that we're going to be doing. And so in essence, I'm looking at the, the model very briefly, and I'll be looking at the environment in which we're going into as well. Next week, we're going to be looking at how do we actually minister to people that have been crushed under the world system? What, what, what do these people look like? How do they get to what they, where they're at? And how do we actually reach them and minister to them? Now, that, And I'll tell you next week that that sermon is a, it's a sermon that I'm developing. So it's a sermon series that I'm developing. I'm going to try and give it to you in one but it'll more than likely end up in two sermons. So I'm going to be just freewheeling it next week because I've been researching this stuff for many, many years. And 
focusing specifically on it in the last couple of months, as well as trying to get the end time stuff done as well. So it's so my mind is like sizzling at the moment with it pops into end time stuff at a drop of a hat, it pops into ministering to people at the drop of a hat. I just don't know where I am at the moment, but I love it. Okay, so let's look at the model. Now, when you study the book of Acts, <clears throat> what you are actually studying is how people lived out the teachings of Jesus. It's a practical example of how they lived, functioned, and ministered because of the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ into their society. Without a solid foundation, you're not going to build a good building. Jesus obviously is our foundation. Jesus himself is our foundation. The teachings of Jesus is our foundation. As explained and taught by the apostles in the, in the epistles. Do you understand that? Okay, so what we learn about Jesus and his teaching in the book, in the Gospels, the apostles explain it in the epistles. So if you want to understand the Gospels, you need to read them through the lens of the epistles. So when Jesus speaks about the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, how does that translate into our life and our environment and our situation? How do we function with it? How, how do we minister? Well, go to the epistles and they will explain to you how that happens. If you want to understand the Old Testament, the purpose of the law, you, you're struggling with the Old Testament. I know you live. You're going to start studying about the Old Testament. Okay, you need to study Romans and Galatians. You want to learn about the Leviticus? You're having trouble with Leviticus and the sacrificial systems? They sacrifice this for that and this for this and this for... And it's sacrificing everything, every day. You want to learn about that? Go and study the book of Hebrews. It explains why it's there. It, it, because that's our example. So you should always interpret Scripture through the teachings of the apostles. The book of Acts is different because the book of Acts actually gives us the example on how they lived out the teaching into a specific environment. And that's one of the most important things I want to share with you today. And I'm not going to go into it in depth, is the environment. The environment in which they manifested the teachings of Jesus. So in Acts, we can read how they applied it, we can read how they demonstrated it, we can read how they lived it out, and that is our example. This is how they lived, this is how they functioned, this is how they ministered in a pre-Christian pagan environment. We live today in a post-Christian neo-pagan environment. So if you want to understand how to live in a pagan environment, manifesting the teachings of Jesus in your life, in your relationships, in your ministry, in, in society, go and read Acts. That's how they did it. That's how we're going to have to do it. And that is why I have been slowly over the last couple of years training you and preparing you to basically begin to live how the Acts Church lived in a post-Christian neo-pagan environment. Now, my timing could be absolutely wrong, so I'm just putting that caveat, that escape clause on there for me, that if the Lord doesn't come in my lifetime, it's there. 
we're going to have fun doing it anyway. <laughs> but if we do have to do it and use it, and it is the time, well, we will be shocked that we go into that period of time, but we won't be caught unawares. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 to 30, NIV. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Notice that. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. You see, in those days, they, the Jews thought it was specifically a Jewish idea. And so the Lord had to basically begin to break them out of that concept and realize, no, this is not just a Jewish idea. This, is, this, is, this message is for the world. And so slowly but surely, through various methods, the Lord broke that mentality within the church. And then the church began to move out from under the Jewish religion, where it got its cover to be able to worship freely, and they became a persecuted minority. Do you see the pattern? If, I mean, you've got to, I've just given you a pattern of what's happening today in the church. The remnant is separating from the church. So no longer are we going to be worshipping under the umbrella of, of the Pontifus Maximus. We're moving out. We're becoming a minority. Persecution is coming. Verse 21. See, my, my brain is fizzling between my, my end time stuff. <laughs> Verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. I tell you, Barnabas is one of the most phenomenal characters in the early book of Acts. Because without Barnabas, we wouldn't have Paul. Barnabas was a phenomenal teacher, I suspect prophet, apostle, and activator of other people's ministries. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, this is where it gets interesting. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. We jump to chapter 13, verse 1 to 3. Acts, Amplified Version. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets who spoke a new message of God to the people, and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, who had been brought up with Herod, Antipas, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, Paul, for, which, for the work to which I have called them. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them in approval and dedication and sent them away on their first journey. I love this. In Acts 13, we have a multicultural membership. We have a, we have a church that just spreads everywhere, every, regardless of, of, of what social barriers might exist. We have a manifestation of God's grace being poured out into the church through the teachings, through the anointing of the, of the preachers. We have prophets and teachers. So you're getting such a biblically strong, accurate church at that point. Then we have apostolic teaching being taught constantly. Then you have prophetic activation. So prophets come, they speak a word, and it activates them to do something. And then you get financial giving, and then you get the apostolos, the sending out. I love this. Now let's go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, because the model, I want us, I want, as we look at the model, I want us to center on what they did. What did the church do? Because you don't get much understanding or revelation about the type of church model in the Bible. There's no specific type of model. Chapter 2, 42 to 47, Amplified Version. They were continually and faithfully devoting themselves to the instruction of the apostles, to fellowship, to eating meals together, to prayers. A sense of awe was felt by everybody, and many wonders and signs, attesting miracles, were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed in Jesus as Savior were together and had all things in common, considering their possessions to belong to the group as a whole. And they began selling their property and possessions and, with, and were sharing the proceeds with all the other believers as anyone had, had, had need. Day after day they met in the temple area, continuing with one mind and breaking bread in various private homes. They were eating their meals together with joy and generous hearts, praising God continually and having favor with all people. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. In the book of Acts, we get three types of preaching. The first type of preaching is preaching the gospel to the unsaved, kerygma. All right, that's evangelism. The second type of preaching is exhortation, homilia. The third type of preaching is didaskana, which is doctrinal teaching. You need all three to have a stable church, to have a biblically sound church, to have a church that is locked in spiritually to the Lord. You need all three. You can't have one without the other. You've got to have all three. It's like a tripod seat. For the tripod seat to work, you've got to have all three legs. If you neglect evangelism, your church is going to end up either socially motivated with a social gospel or politically motivated with a political gospel. And you can see that in a lot of the mainline denominations, a lot of Protestant denominations, that stop preaching the gospel, make getting people saved, conviction of sin, etc., and so it's become more socially orientated or politically orientated. If you take away exhortation, it becomes intellectually orientated. So people consider this an intellectual exercise. If you take away doctrinal teaching, I feel that that would be the most dangerous church to be in point because if you take away the teachings of Jesus as expanded through the apostles you subject yourself to becoming sheeple to wolves you expose yourself to false doctrine and that is dangerous so what type of Christian are you are you a pig Christian poor pathetic ignorant groveling and ground down or are you a dud Christian dumb unto destruction deceived unto death or are you a big five 
deadly and dangerous to hunt. All three are needed for balance in a church. If you don't have all three, that church then gets subject to deception and you'll start seeing the church fall into deception. Right, let's go back to Acts chapter 2 verse 42 and what I want to do is I want to look at those four particular instructions, four, four particular events that took place that were practiced within the early church. They continually and faithfully devoted themselves to the instruction of the apostles, to fellowship, to eating meals together and to prayers. So let's look at the instruction of the apostles. Doctrine. So Luke moves now from describing what took place on the day of Pentecost and he now starts to describe what these guys got up to after Pentecost, after the Spirit of God poured out on them and, and, and now these guys start unleashing, the Holy Spirit unleashes through them and what took place. Remember, they functioned and they lived and they ministered in a pre-Christian pagan society. This is, our, this, this is our model. We need to study Acts. If you want to know how to live today, you need to study Acts. If you want to know how to preach the gospel today, you better study Acts. If you want to know how to relate to people, both people in the world, people in the religious institutions, people in the church, study Acts. Because we are living in a post-Christian neo-pagan society where Christianity is slowly being pushed through legislation out and it's becoming harder and harder to be Christian or to preach Christianity or to preach the pure word of, the, of, of God without becoming subject to some law that was passed or other. Devotion to doctrine. They were devoted to accurate teaching. Steadfast devotion to accurate teaching. The first thing that they did was they got their doctrine right. Alright, the first thing. They devoted themselves to accurate teaching. Didaskinen. Unity of the Holy Spirit will only happen if it is founded on accurate biblical teaching. I cannot have unity with someone who says that they were Christian, tongue-talking Christian, who bows before the statue of Mary. I cannot have unity with a tongue-talking charismatic who goes and lies in the grave of some old saint that's died in the 18th century revival, sucks on the grave, and thinks they're getting the anointing of the dead saint. I cannot have unity with that person. Why? Because they're committing the sin of necromancy. How do I know that? Because I know my doctrine. I know my doctrine. We have major denominations today that the ministers go away to a conclave or a conference or whatever and pass legislation changing their constitutions that accept sexual immorality 
where God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for. That's what's happening. We have major denominations today signing it over. We have preachers, big time preachers, we have small time preachers running to the Pope in Rome who believes that if you accept salvation only through Jesus, you must be excommunicated from the church. And they run into Rome to shake his hand and kiss his ring. Placing us in the ecumenical movement, or them, not me. Placing them under the World Council of Churches. Placing them under Babylon. Preparing people to receive the, the first Christ that comes along. We've got preachers promoting all sorts of, of, of preaching and teaching on seven steps to achieve nirvana in your Christian prayer life, mixing marketing and pop psychology and feeding it to the people. You've been warned about this. If your doctrine is wrong, then anything that comes that gets fed to you, you will accept it. Because you don't know whether it's right or wrong. If your doctrine's wrong, your prophecy's wrong. You can download a lot of teaching on deception from our, from our podcast, Deception in the Church series. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. John chapter 17, 20 to 21, Amplified. Neither for these alone do I, pray, uh, do I pray. It is not for their sake only that I make this request. So now Jesus in John 17 is praying for his disciples in front of him. And then he switches and he starts to pray for you. And this is his prayer for you. But also for all those who will ever come to believe in, trust in, cling to, rely on me through their word and teaching that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also may be one in us so that the world may believe and be conceived that you have sent me. You cannot have the unity with one another and you cannot have unity with Jesus Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit if your doctrine is wrong. Wrong doctrine will put you on a fast track of ecumenical unity and it will place you in the greatest danger of receiving the greatest deception of mankind that is coming, and that is to accept the Antichrist as the Christ. And most of the church is going down that road right now. Doctrine comes first. Accurate biblical teaching comes first. Ephesians 6.14 NIV Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Here's a question for you to think about. Why do we put the belt of truth on first and not righteousness first? Simple. If I don't know the truth, how do I know what righteousness that I'm going to receive? Because there's a false righteousness going around right now through Gnosticism. They're preaching agnostic Jesus in the church. They're preaching pure new age in the lot of the churches today. How can you know true righteousness if you don't know the truth? 
How can you pray in tongues and stand and pray before Mary? How can you receive the anointing from Jesus Christ when you stand on a grave of a dead person? How can you walk into a worship service, start howling like a dog, then drop, roll and crawl around barking and think that that's the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit's gifts to you, one of them includes self-control. How do I know this? I know the truth. If you don't have right doctrine, you will not know how to behave correctly as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will become subject to every teaching and teacher out there. So number one, these guys in a pre-Christian pagan society got their doctrine right. Once their doctrine was right, they then began to fellowship with one another, Cornonia. The fellowship, Acts 2, 42, they, they, they instructions of the apostles, and then they went to fellowship. They had frequent, regular contact with each other. In, in Acts 2, 44, we read, and, the, and all those who had believed in Jesus as Savior were together and had all things in common, considering their possessions to belong to the whole group as a whole. Now, communal living was voluntary in the, in, in the Jerusalem church. It was not forced socialism or communism like some churches try and say, oh, Jesus was promoting communism or Jesus was promoting socialism. No, it wasn't. You don't hear of communal living past Acts chapter 5. How do I know that? Because my doctrine is right. No other New Testament church practiced communal living. But the concept of fellowship here was they were knitted together in community, in koinonia. As we get closer to the end times, maybe we're going to have to revert to that. When the first seal gets broken and the horsemen get released, it might be that we need to operate in that manner. But remember, this is an example of how to live in a pre-Christian pagan society. So the, so the believers met daily, and they enjoyed the unity of the Spirit. They, they congregated in the tabernacle area, the temple area, but they met regularly in one another's homes. And they probably believed that they were a remnant within the Jerusalem culture. But slowly but surely they began to understand that they weren't part of, of, of the Jewish synagogue system. And that's where the, the conflict began to get pretty intense. And that's where the Antioch church got birthed because at the, at the martyrdom of Stephen, the church then, the first dis dispersion took place. In understanding fellowship, we have to understand the functions of the body and how they interacted underneath the head. We all have a purpose. We all have a place. We all have a function. And we are all under the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we develop in community and begin to understand this and grow in this, so we begin to function accurately. 
Psalm 133 says this, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured out of the, on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the, on the collar of his robe. It is like the Jew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. From there the Lord bestowed his blessings, even life forevermore. Fellowship is not necessary all flowers, sunshines, pretty little colored unicorns, and everybody skipping around, you know, in, in, in springtime, throwing rose petals around. <sighs> not like that. <laughs> it's family living. Right? This is what it's like. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. <laughs> Try living with a prophet. <laughs> you, be, you, you, you will over time become a very sharpened uh, instrument in the hand of the Lord. People out of fellowship are out of God's will. I don't care what their excuse is. I, I've, I've come across so many isolated Christians out there and they excuse, I just listen to their excuse and I think to myself, you don't know your doctrine. People out of fellowship will not stand during the end times. Hebrews 10.25, listen to this, listen to the words and listen to what I've just said. Not forsaking or neglecting to assemble together as believers as in the habit of some people, but admonishing, warning, urging, encouraging one another, and all the more faithfully as you see the day approaching. As I said, I might be off on seeing the day approaching, but I might not be off. And so what am I trying to do? I'm trying to train you into this new model of operation. Why? Because we're going to need it when that day actually comes. If you can't stand in good times, you're not going to stand in bad times. I can assure you of that. If you can't stand together in good times, you will be alone in bad times and you will fall. Proverbs 18.1 An unfriendly person pursues selfish ends and against all sound judgments starts quarrels. You might not find a biblical church where you live. This is for people out in podcast land. You might be in a church and you're starting to look at what's taking place and what's getting preached over the pulpit and things are becoming hairy as you see the stuff starting to creep in. And it's getting more and more difficult to find biblical churches as you see these days approach and as the apostasy begins to grow. Who says going to church has to, be, has to be going to a church building? Who says going to church you have to be part of a denomination? You can meet in the home with, an, uh, with a group of Bible believers. You can become part of an apostolic team. Download my free ebook. Finding the discipleship environment at www.life-house.net forward slash fade.pdf. That's what we're at. That's what we're about here at LifeHouse. 
You know, public church buildings only came about 300 years after this book of Acts. They never had a church building for 300 years. Doctrine, fellowship. Now, from these two, two practices evolved, or not evolved, but two practices became more and more evident being practiced. The first one was the breaking of bread, and the second one was prayer. Let's look at the breaking of bread quickly. Eating meals together. Now, what they did here was they combined eating meals together with the Lord's Supper. In the Near East, if you were invited to a meal, basically that meal was like a commitment to each other. It was, it was, a, it was a sign of a common commitment and the development of deep fellowship. So when you shared the meal, you basically sealed the friendship. In pagan religions at that time, what they did was, the meal formed, in many instances, the central rite of worship of the God. In Judaism, what they used to do is they used to eat food that was offered to God, specifically the, 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 the peace offering. They would, they would take home the peace offering and they would eat it during the feasts. So the breaking of bread was probably included in the eating of the meal when they gathered together in fellowship. And they ate the meals and they observed the Lord's Supper at the same time. Now I'm not going to go into the various different meanings of the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper came from the Passover, which we read about in the book of Exodus. So what it means is we are looking back at what God has done for us and we are looking forward to when we meet Him and have the meal together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now there was a very, very clear warning about the Lord's Supper. Never eat the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You can't just come along and partake. Because eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner leads to premature death or sickness. I have seen this in my ministry. I have seen someone partake of the Lord's Supper with me. The Lord instructed me through this very, very hard time in this one church that I had to break bread after this one meeting with this group of people. And I cleared the slate with them at that meeting. I said, right, as of now, we'll start again. And then they wanted to leave and walk out and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, no, 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 no. And I brought out the, 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 the communion. And I said, we're going to break bread now and we're going to seal this in the Lord. Within two weeks, the guy that did that was dead. Instantaneously. Freak accident. Boom. I've seen this take place. Eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You see, the Lord's Supper is one of the ways in which the Lord keeps us right. 
Because before we come and eat the Lord's Supper, He gives us instructions. Make sure that you get yourself sorted out. Make sure you get your sin issues sorted out before you come and partake of the Lord's Supper. How do I know this? My doctrine is right. So you need to understand what is the doctrine, what are the teachings on the Lord's Supper? How, how does Paul explain in Corinthians the Lord's Supper? Finally, prayer. Prayer is the expression of dependence. And I'm telling you now, our prayer is nowhere where it needs to be. And, and I'm talking about myself. But as we go further into this society and, the, the, and society becomes darker and darker, I'm going to tell you now, our prayer needs to be more and more intense. But there's something interesting I want to point out with you. Notice that prayer is not number one on the list. Get your doctrine right first. Get your fellowship right second. Get the blood covering third. And now go before the Lord. Protocols. Very, very important. That's the model. That's where we're going. That's what we're going to be doing here at LifeHouse. And that's what we've been preparing for over these last five years. What type of environment, this is my second part of the sermon, what type of environment are we going to be facing? So we've looked at the program, the, the, the teaching, the Big Five Disciple. We've looked at the Church of Acts. Now let's look at our environment. Now for a full teaching on this, go and get my end time teachings. And you can get that through our webpage and begin downloading. I'm at, at, I'm at Daniel at this particular point. Now, look around you. We must not despise the day of small beginnings. Don't discount what God is doing based on numbers. You see, as I look at the state of the church, and I see what's going on around, especially as I've been studying the Deception in the Church series, which we did a year ago or two years ago, and especially as I'm doing the End Time series right now and uploading it as a podcast, I'm looking at the state of society and I'm looking at the state of the church. And I can assure you that not all is well in churchland. The conditions of the mega churches today, in spite of their growing, is shocking. I mean, I can point you to mega church pastors leading the biggest churches in the world that are sitting in jail now because they've stolen money. I can point to you of pastors whose ministries have shattered because they've committed adultery, committed other kinds of sin. They've lost their ministry because they've committed other kinds of sin, cheated, lied. Despite their size, they're not healthy. Despite their continued growth in numbers, they're not healthy. You see, you've got to ask yourself the question, what is the church teaching? What is the church actually doing? People think God is blessing because it's big. But I'm telling you now, the Christian church 
is beginning to separate. The crack in the church is becoming a fissure. And two brides have been prepared. A bride for the Antichrist and a bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what's going on now. The church is separating because of the, into the whole Babylon and into the bride of Christ. Whole denominations are splitting. Whole denominations are moving. You see, there's a shaking that's coming. Hebrews chapter 12, 26 to 29. Then at Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he has given a promise. Yet once more I will shake and make tremble not only the earth, but also the starry heavens. Now this expression yet once more indicates the final removal and transformation of all that can be shaken. That is, of that which has been created in order that we cannot be shaken may remain and continue. Let us therefore receive a kingdom that is firm and stable and cannot be shaken. Offered to God pleasant service and acceptable worship with modesty and pious care and godly fear and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Think about this. When the shaking comes, what church is going to stand? The faithful one or the one compromised for the sake of fame and fortune or worldly approval? God's the one that adds the numbers. God's the one that releases the blessings. When the truth is compromised, when the anointing is exchanged for hype, when the worship is exchanged for entertainment, when exposition of the word is replaced with marketing, pop psychology, and new age teachings, where will you be when the shaking begins? What will you be found doing when the shaking begins? Something is coming. Now listen carefully. When the shaking begins, you're not going to find time to get your teaching sorted out. You need to get it sorted out now. Something is coming and he's called Jesus Christ. And we should be warning people this is what is called the gospel of the kingdom, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now here's a question for you. How do you actually minister into a Christian, a post-Christian, neo-pagan world where people are apathetic at, about God at best? See, the millennial generation, once you get their eyes out of whatever instrument is stuck into the palm of their hand and engage them in a bit of conversation, they know the church is compromised. They know the church is full of wolves, pedophiles, swindlers, liars and thieves. They know that. Then you get the older generation. They keep going to these churches. Oblivious. Three monkey syndrome. Monkey don't see, monkey don't do, monkey don't talk. Monkey just come and sit. And I feed him banana. When the shaking begins, where are you going to be? Western society is post-Christian, neo-pagan. How do you evangelize in a post-Christian, neo-pagan world?
How do you minister to people who have been so brutalized by the consequences of their sin choices? Well, you do not use the church model that was successful in a Christian civilization, which one of the models was the uh, congregational model, which we're transitioning out of. You use the model that is actually successful in operating in a pre-Christian pagan society, the Antioch church model, the Acts church model. You see, people want to know about the future. And the amazing thing about the future is you know exactly what's going to happen, and it's in your playbook called the Bible. I'm, I'm studying... Daniel, in preparation of loading up the Daniel podcasts. It is amazing how accurate that prophet was when he spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and interpreted the dream on what was going to happen in the future. Even Nebuchadnezzar came along and said, See these guys, they're ten times better than my, prof, my, my, my necromancers and my sorcerers and my astrologers. Ten times better than them was this, this man. Now I'm going off the track now. Get back. What is the gospel of the kingdom? It is when you use prophetic, the prophetic ministry of the, of, of the, of the Bible to actually teach the gospel. People are worried. People in the world know when they get their head out of the rat race and they begin just to think a little bit, people know we're going into a bad situation. They get, they're, they're trying to get information from every which way they can and, 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 and they don't know what's truth and what's not truth anymore. Yet you know it. And you can use this in preaching to them. I mean, for example, Jesus said, when you see the Jews get back, to Israel and Jerusalem know that it's the beginning of the end. Do you know when that took place? 1968. 1968. Jesus tells us to use this kind of evangelism in the last days. So guess what the devil does? Guess what the devil does? He comes along and he gets these mega preachers to stand up in their pulpits and tell you studying about the end times is a lot of rubbish, a waste of your time. Can you believe that? And most people swallow it. Why? They don't know their doctrine. For example, Rick Warren promotes his global peace plan. Now let's join hands with the Islamists and create world peace. Yes, that's going to work. Peace without the Prince of Peace. That's going to work well. So in the purpose-driven lie, I mean purpose-driven life, he begins to lay the groundwork for the emerging church Movement, reformation within the church, which is basically opening the door for the new age to be preached over the pulpits in the evangelical churches. And this is what he writes. Page 285 in The Purpose Driven Lie. 
When the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, Jesus quickly switched the conversation to evangelism. He wanted them to concentrate on their mission in the world. He said, in essence, the details of my return are none of your business. What is your business in the mission I have given you? Focus on that. Wow. This is a man that teaches yearly up to 40,000 preachers globally. Tony Campala, quoting in Faith Undone, page 160, says this, so, says Christians who make a big thing of their claim that we are now living in the final age of the church history prior to the second coming of Jesus, have been the cause of extremely detrimental consequences. They discount the Sermon of the Mount. They don't care about the needy, and they have had such a negative impact on geopolitics, which Campala says can lead only to war. Christian motivational speaker. He goes on. 2003 in the Baptist Press, speaking in 2003 at the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's annual meeting. The whole sense of the rapture which may occur at any moment is used as a device to oppose engagement with the principalities, the powers, the political and economic structures of our age. Unbelievable. I've got so many other quotes here that I want to give to you. It's, un it's unbelievable. Alice Bailey. You know who Alice Bailey is? Satanist. Pure, out-and-out Satanist. Alright? Listen to what she writes about what the church should be doing. It is time that the church woke up to its true mission, which is to materialize the kingdom of God on earth today, here and now. People are no longer interested in a possible heavenly state or a probable hell. They need to learn that the kingdom is here and must express itself on earth. The way into the kingdom is the way that Christ trod. It involves the sacrifice of the personal self for the good of the world and the service of humanity. That's a Satanist talking. Woo! <laughs> now, this is our friend Rick Warren in the foreword of Dan Kimball's book called The Emerging Church. Today, seekers are hungry for symbols and metaphors and experiences and stories that reveal the greatness of God. But seekers are constantly changing. We must be sensitive to them like Jesus was. We must be willing to meet them on their own turf and speak to them in ways that understand. And then Dan Kimball writes in his book, remember what Alice Bailey says? Dan Kimball writes on page 87, and you can read about this in 87 to 8, uh, page 90 of listening to the beliefs of the emerging churches. He says, the kingdom of God is here now. In one sense, they're accurate. But in another sense, they're completely wrong. And they are so deceptive. Robert Schuller, the godfather of the mega church, built the crystal cathedral, went bankrupt now belongs to the Roman Catholic Church. His advice to young church leaders, don't let eschatology stifle your long-term thinking. That was quoted in a C. Peter Wagner book. Mark Driscoll really does not like eschatology at all. This is what he says. 
We are not eschatological theonomists or classic dispensationalists, for example, Schofield, and believe that divisive and dogmatic certainty surrounding particular details of Jesus' second coming are unprofitable speculation because the timing and exact details of his return are unclear to us. Mark Driscoll, Acts 29 Network. He goes on to mock people like myself, and I don't mind being mocked because I'm a conspiracy theorist that wears a tinfoil hat. Mark Driscoll mocks the idea of a rapture for believers and a one-world government with an antichrist who makes people wear a mark to buy or sell or trade. Confessionist of a reformational page 49 to 50. He adds that this kind of end-time mission is not a message from Jesus, but rather one concocted from a cunning serpent. So 25% of the Bible, this guy says, is from the serpent. Because 25% of the Bible is about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving specifics that are so accurate, it will blow your mind. The radical reformationist, page 78, Driscoll mocks the imminent rapture. He claims that the rapture of doctrine is evidence of the sickness of, Christ, of American Christians and mocks those who have the goals of leaving this trailer park of a planet before God's tornado touches down on all the sinners. He calls dispensationalists, nutty Christians, end-time prophecy, Kaczynczyks. Ted Kaczynczyk was the Unibomber. Now, this man, Warren Smith, listen to what Warren Smith says. Now, Warren Smith comes from the New Age. Coming out of the New Age teaching, I have learned in a very personal way that the details of Jesus' return are definitely our business. Understanding the events surrounding his return was critical to understanding how badly I had been deceived by my New Age teachings. I had learned from reading the Bible that there is a false Christ on the horizon and that for a number of years I had unknowingly been one of his followers. Because the Bible's clear authoritative teaching about the real Jesus and his true return had, brought to my had been brought to my attention, I was able to see how deceived I was by understanding that there was a false Christ trying to counterfeit the true Christ's return. I was able to renounce the false Christ I'd been following and commit my life to the true Jesus Christ. Deceived on purpose, page 147. Warren Smith, New Age, ex-New Ager. In the Bible, in the book of Revelations, the Bible says that Satan is going to deceive the whole world. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, and the age-old serpent who was called the devil and Satan, he who continually deceives and seduces the entire inhabitant world, he has been thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, put your little tinfoil hats on. All you see out there about coming aliens and alien visitations and all, well, there it is. There it is. There it is. It's, the devil's coming. He's getting chucked out. And his angels. And the New Age is now spinning that. The aliens are coming to rescue us. Under every conspiracy, you just go back to the Word of God and see what God says. God is so accurate in what He says and what He's revealed to His prophets. It is unbelievable. So in the emergent church, you've got three essential items that they preach. And if you 
in, embrace one of these three items, basically you're opening yourself up for grand deception. If you embrace mysticism, now you think, oh, I'm not going to embrace mysticism. Well, go to a charismatic church down the road and start rolling around on the floor, barking like a dog, hissing like a snake, or laughing it up there and thinking that that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. No, it's not. It's the mysticism of the Kundalini Spirit. Opening yourself up to deception. The belief that the kingdom of God will be established on earth before Christ returns. Preterism. The rejection of eschatology. The study of the end times Bible prophecy. If you embrace any of those three, you are going to be in grave, grave danger. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 Let no one in any way deceive or entrap you, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That is the great rebellion, the abandonment of faith by professed Christians. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, the Antichrist, the one who is destined to be destroyed. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. But the Holy Spirit explicitly and unmistakably declares that in the latter times, some will turn away from the faith, paying attention instead to deceitful and seductive spirits and doctrines of demons. Do we have false alarms? Now, I've got Brian McLaren that I was going to quote. I've got, I've got Ed Stenser that I was going to quote. But you can go and get their um, understanding of, of what these guys say. Pure, pure, new age garbage that these guys preach. And they're masking it as emergent church, emergent Christian church. It's not. It's new age. It's a doctrine of a demon. You hear it being preached over your pulpit. Get out of that church. Anyway. Have there been false alarms? Yes. Y2K. In 1987, I can read, I can remember reading and studying 88 reasons why Jesus was going to come before Yom Kippur of 1989. Convinced of it. I've taught you about camping, David Camping. He tells the world three times Jesus is coming. Just resets the dates. The world doesn't believe him, but you get some mugginses in the church that do. The blood moons. Latest one. Most of them weren't even been seen from the Holy Land. Our blood moons are coming. Guys in the Holy Land, they, there's no blood moon in the Holy Land. There's no eclipse that they saw in the Holy Land. So we have the boy that cries wolf. And now we go out, go, go out and warn people and we get painted with the same brush. So, I'm going to conclude now. So, we have in the Christian church those that say, don't worry about end times. You just be happy if you want to do this, do this. If you want to go and have little mythical labyrinth prayers, go do that. If you want to bark, drop, roll, and squirm, you don't do that. That's okay. We've got people like Rick Joyner and Gerald Coates that say they don't even believe in the rapture anymore. And we have those 
that also blow the false alarms. That's why I gave that big caveat. All right, this might not be it, but anyway. But when the world gets darker, how do we actually begin to minister to them? Isaiah 60 verse 2, For behold, darkness shall cover the whole earth, and dense darkness all the peoples. But the Lord shall arise upon you, O Jerusalem, and His glory shall be seen on you. How does that work? And I'm going to be discussing that next week. So, in closing, what type of church do you belong, do you belong to? When you get this type of teaching... Do you go into normalcy bias? Do you go into cognitive dissonance? Do you go into unbelief? Is your, is your church teaching you how to live effectively in a pagan world? How to function? How to minister in a pagan world? I mean, how, when you go to work and you see someone broken and the Holy Spirit quickens to you, you need to speak to this person at work. How do you actually speak to them at work without getting all the PC correct nutcases having cadenzas because you mentioned the name of Jesus in their midst? I mean, there's a in, in a U.S. Air Force. They I don't know what they did to this officer. He was a major. He had his Bible open on his desk, and they literally and I'm, and I'm exaggerating. They literally shut the base down. You know, called in the Ghostbusters. Latest Ghostbusters, ah, let me not go there because I get arrested. <laughs> what type of disciple are you? Are you able to live, function, minister effectively in a post Christian, neo pagan society? Arise from spiritual depression to a new life. Shine, be radiant with the glory and brilliance of the Lord, for your light has come. Isaiah 60 verse 1 to 3, Amplified. For in fact, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness will cover the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, Jerusalem, and His glory and brilliance will be seen on you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Next week, I'm going to be talking to you about how they got to where they got Timothy chapter 3. How did they get there? What has happened to them to produce what you see in their lives? And how do you effectively go in and begin to minister to them? What I want you to meditate on in this next week is that scripture of Isaiah 3. The comparison of darkness to light. The darker it's going to get, the brighter you are going to get. What does it look like? How do you function? Amen. God bless.